Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. This is episode 34 of Developers Eating the World, the second virtual episode. Um, my next guest, I trolled him on the Observe 2020, uh, I guess it was a virtual event, webinar. Um, and thanks for joining me, Ali. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. I'm Ali. Uh, I currently work at Oscar Health as a site reliability engineer. Uh, we own a lot of things, but one of the things I'm super excited about is observability, like metrics and monitoring. Um, before Oscar, I lived in Texas and worked at Dell for most of my time. I was working oh. on a machine learning project there and nice. supporting a lot of other things. Um, Dell was like a really cool place. My mom was originally from Texas, but I'm from the East Coast and um, just decided to kind of come back to just be here with my East Coast people. <laughs> <laughs> Your East Coast people. Yeah, West Coast, East Coast definitely has kind of this. Uh, There's a little separation there, yeah. Coast. Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're the thing. Yeah. Um, so when you were doing machine learning stuff, were you a developer? Yeah, I was. I was like, probably not necessarily SRE. Uh, we had on-call support engineers, but we were responsible for building the services out um, that were being used. Yeah. Nice. So what made you think about transitioning then into a more kind of developer support um, and production support type function? Uh, well, I actually had a reliability project as like a typical software engineer. So we had a, we had a critical business path that wasn't scaling as well as it needed to. Um, and that type of mindset would traditionally take like a reliability engineer, but we didn't have like SREs at Dell, you know, at that time as a part of like the culture. Um, so typically software engineers would take reliability work as a part of like their product because they were also responsible for that. Um, that's interesting. You know what I just realized when I talk about SRE, and I think that this is one of the downsides of acronyms, is I treat it as a function. I, I just realized that the reliability portion of it, I mean, obviously we know it's kind of, you know, making sure the site's up and so forth, yeah. but the idea of designing for reliability, I feel like is somewhat neglected when people talk about the SRE role. I think when I read traditional books, you typically see maintenance, you typically see reliability uh, associated with like maintenance engineers, with people who probably initially didn't write the system that are responsible for owning it in production. And then they would be the people that would see the production like issues and would probably have to figure out ways to solve those issues without modifying code. And that's where I think the traditional kind of reliability went through because when I started looking at reliability a long time ago, a lot of stuff was about like changes in production or new releases or things that happen. And how do you look at those changes that happen during a maintenance cycle or a new release and how did that impact your reliability of the overall system? Um, so I think like, uh, I think, you know, maybe Google was far ahead of this, but I think like even just in the corporate sense and just removing like the academic, you know, research that's behind it. Uh, I still think it took a lot of people to make these positions where it became a part of the design process like early on. Right. Um, and not just kind of like a job role as a sense. Like we still have a job role today, but we started to define a lot more principles and strengthen up our development right. life cycle now to like account for these new scaling things that we have today. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you generally, I think of healthcare as kind of not being that far ahead in, in the technical world, but SRE is definitely a pretty new function. What, why do you think the, that Oscar that you're with now started embracing the role relatively early? Uh, well, there's, there's, there is a nice, decent sized Google culture. Um, what I can say is that like, I think we went into this industry with our eyes wide open. Uh, one thing that I've noticed because I've been in different industries, like there's been companies that I've been at and you know, people grew up playing games or people grew up, you know, using computers. And if you think about healthcare system today, people don't necessarily need computers. So the type of, um, uh, the level at which people onboard onto like healthcare systems is a lot different from, you know, releasing some new support software assist or like releasing new software that's geared to our audience that is a lot more comfortable using software or just mobile devices or things in general. So that has been a very interesting challenge because in healthcare space, you need to be accessible as possible because people need to be able to get care in the easiest way right away. Um, so this presents a different challenge. And I think just from that perspective uh, of just realizing going into healthcare that we needed to be able to develop our teams a lot different to be able to support like user needs. Um, and yeah. if you look at, yeah, and if you look at like, what a, I think a lot, there's this other term that Google has coined as customer reliability engineers who actually focus on like translating customer impact into maybe the more like system uh, numbers and resources there. But uh, those are some of the things that we thought about. Like we needed our teams to be engaged with the user and the flow of providing someone the care, which we typically call care delivery. So we call it a process of taking a member through the process of healthcare care delivery. And I think, you know, as we try to incorporate tech, um, all the things that we know to make like any service that we love on the site, just as performance as possible, needs to be applied to the same industry. Um, yeah. So we, yeah, so we, so we took what worked for, you know, a lot of user facing uh, organizations and tried to apply that to healthcare. Yeah, that's, it's really important. I, um, I remember the first version of the Kaiser app it was almost offensive. Like you guys, like you guys don't care. But the thing was, I had no choice. I had to yeah. use it for certain yeah. things. It wasn't even a choice. And I think in some industries that kind of makes people neglect, like, yeah, well, they have to use it anyways. But it's gotten dramatically better. I'd say yeah. it has a lot of improvement. But it, it matters a lot in terms of you know the satisfaction. And and the thing is with technical users, you can spot a bad app. Yeah. Um, I know for you and me, it's probably even easier, Yeah. but yeah. you could definitely tell when the application did team, the team behind this application is not performing very well. So in the talk you did, there was, um, I think it was the moment where I'm like, oh man, I'm reaching out to that dude. Um, <laughs> you talked about anti-patterns um, yep. and I'm really big into design patterns and anti-patterns. Can you give maybe the TLDR of, of the anti-patterns that you were talking about? Um, so there's a couple and a lot of them come out, all of them basically come out of the practical monitoring book. And so I don't know if you want to take them one by one, but the first one is tool obsession and just basically teams are just obsessed with, you know, tools. You see this a lot in the industry where there's a plethora of tools coming in, especially in the monitoring space. Um, it would be nice to see like kind of a curve of like the new tools that come in over the past couple of years. Um, because we have all these tools, they might not necessarily work well together because they solve maybe a very specific thing, you kind of um, get into arguments about them or whether or not they are the right thing to use. The second thing um, 
is that monitoring is not a job, you know, for one particular person. Right. Basically, like what we mentioned earlier, like how you know you need to have a lot of people involved to make a product actually was good and actually useful for others. And then checkbox monitoring, um, that's number three, where you kind of just have a generic list of things that you should monitor. And I don't necessarily think this is bad for like a, a general design review, but you want everyone in your organization to get into a habit of being able to uh, know what to monitor from their systems. And then the fourth one is using monitoring as a crutch um, and just being just doing monitoring like after the fact, um, after you realize that something has happened um, that you go to just like monitoring instead of actually trying to fix the issue. And then the fifth one is manual configuration. Um, more like Snowflake. I want to double click into the deciding what to monitor one because this one drives me nuts. As we all try to be Google, you know, yeah. we go down the SRE paths, which I fully agree with. But one of the things that I've talked to a lot of SREs and they seem to have the same kind of point of view. A lot of people are going, oh, red is, is our metrics. Like that's, everybody's doing it, that's what we do. Um, but that's not really the case, is it? Like it may be the right thing for your application, it may not. Yeah. I don't know, I think I, I might have been bad at falling into the mindset of like, focusing on noisy alerts a lot more. I think it's easier, like when you maybe come into an organization that already has a bunch of alerts set up, like your mindset kind of maybe moves more towards like fixing noisy alerts. Cause like you said, there's a lot of alerts that system engineers do set up that just typically be noisy. And a lot of, of those are the lower level system metrics that might not actually um, tie back to anything that's wrong with your system at all. Uh, and this, this could be spike in CPU, maybe like indexing is happening on a system or like caching is uh, having some right. issues. Yeah, like, and these are things that like, maybe we don't care about, but I do think those are things that we should monitor. Um, and I think these are things that you have dashboards. I think a lot of good people in the monitoring space talk about technical debt through dashboards. And that's one of the glaring things I see when I come on as a new engineer to organization and that dashboards aren't necessarily kept up well. Um, and you wanna be able to provide a way for people to say like, oh, we're monitoring, like let's have a tier level of the things that we're supposed to monitoring. If we see this thing is like getting out of hand too much, maybe we move this into alert. So actually defining like how you're gonna get in um, a metric into being an actual alert is things that um, I think teams, you know, have to keep working on that process and we have two and it works really well. So we have this experimental phase of where Hey, like this one alert is kind of like working, like kind of working, but kind of not. And sometimes when we go get paged in the middle of the night, to saw that issue, there's nothing there. So let's roll out this other like metric um, that probably has a bunch of different inputs that maybe give us the same output in some sense, uh, but gives like helps us get a better view of um, how our system should behave and is behaving. And so that's how I kind of like thought about that approach recently. So a lot of the things that you're describing are really strategic. Yeah, just a lot oh. more strategic, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think that the problem with like a lot of people is that they just want the check checklist. Yep. They don't they don't want to think about the strategy. They just want to, yeah. all right, tell me all the five things I have to do to implement SRE. And, and we've done it. I mean, I think it's helpful. Like we've actually generated default alert configs for our developers so they don't have to necessarily learn yeah. how to, you know, register an alert. But I do think the downside of that is that people might not be able to take in not, like too much automation. It's like those ironies of automation where you're basically uh, reducing the lens of someone's view of a system or their knowledge of a system because you automated it so much. 
So it's, it's important not to automate maybe monitoring so much because, I mean, alerting so much because you need people to be able to kind of go back and tweak uh, whatever they need to. Um, because like pager fatigue is a, is a real issue. And I think yeah. those are, yeah. Um, and those are things that a lot of teams operationally don't necessarily talk about. So are in your organization, um, are you on call? Are your developers on call? Is it a combination? Yeah, everyone's everyone at the company is nice. Yeah, and that's kind of the SRE, yeah, SRE principles, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's good. Like we try to share the responsibilities, um, and so that's good. But like because of that, I think it's hard to uh, facilitate like like um, operational best practices, and so you get into this issue of teams maybe not knowing what's the best way to monitor or to set Uh, metrics up, and so you end up getting a lot of metrics in your system over time. You get a lot of alerts in your system over time that might not really add any value. Um, yeah. And those, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like there needs to be guardrails for that and, and best practices and frameworks, which it sounds like you, you already spend time doing. Yeah, because, uh, you know, open conversation around those things. Um, and I think just over time when people get alerts that um, just really fatigue them, or just make them not really feel excited about their day. I think that's something that people just need to address. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. So I want to get to the new teach me to, to code section of this, but I want to start because you've, you've thrown out some lingo there. And I, I also, in, in the in-person ones I've been doing, have been throwing around terminology and getting response. Um, so the first one you already saw, said that you were really into, and yeah. I think that this is a, uh, rel- a relatively challenging term to define. We'll start with that one, observability. I think this other term called visibility. And I think visibility engineering is probably like the way that we probably want to go. Uh, and basically allowing, and you know, Liz Vaughn kind of talks about this, and basically where ideas come up to is about being able to debug systems um, like if you have someone that maybe never worked at your company before, but you're trying to debug this issue, so you got to come and be able to debug this issue with the same set of tools that you have. So like what's most important is like your workflow and your processes to be able to troubleshoot the issue in production and also being able to allow other people to be able to look at data and be able to like go ask a question. If they didn't ask the right question, they can go back later and ask the right question and be able to get the answer from that data. Um, so when we talk about at the beginning process of designing a system to be able to get to that point, you know, what things do we need to expose to allow people to be able to do that? And I think that gets into those three pillars of the logging, tracing, and metrics. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, it's, it's, yeah, it's just basically more about making sure that we design systems that when there is an issue in production that we can actually fix it ourselves. But then if there's a problem that we might not know, we could bring someone in right away and they can get up to speed to where we are. Um, and I, and that's honestly what observability means to me at the simplest level with no buzzwords. Um, right. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of the next evolution beyond monitoring, which is just detectors and collecting yeah. the things and, and visualizing it yeah. to like, well, there's two aspects of it. There's the shift left aspect, which is design your system to be observable. Yeah. And then there's the shift right part of it is like, make sure that this is something I can actually use yeah. and do something with. Yeah. yeah. And so um, there's like, I think there's one slogan that goes around like, you need observability now in a world of microservices. And uh, I had an interview with someone who was asked, was interested in starting an observability 
product and he was like, do I really need to start this product um, if you have a microservice? And I was like, no, I run a very large monolithic at my uh, company and it needs the same reservability as any distributed application. Like, you know, it does have different AI, uh, UI nodes. It does run on a single database, um, but indexing happens. Other things happen on different nodes at any given time that they all are theoretically the same, but I still need to have that same approach to the system. And these are things that, you know, we should have been talking about before microservices, which we were. Uh, we just didn't deem it as a reality. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's the big thing for all these terms is being able to put it in an a, uh, umbrella. All right. So the next term, because you said that you were into machine learning, yep. um, AI ops. Uh, this is a term that's interesting to me. I think it's super important. Um, kind of in the future, I... I don't know. I don't really know anyone uh, who's doing it. So there's this one guy who gave a talk at SREcon uh, in 2018 from Uber. I can't think of his name right now, but he talked about um, how they build predictive workloads to be able to schedule like new load for Uber. And this was all basically done on machine learning. They took a workload, did predicting learning on it, and then be able to like have those compute resources ready for when they uh, expected like a certain demand. And when I talked to him after that talk, I think we both kind of admitted like that type of work is probably like later in the, like later in probably this next decade. Uh, because a lot of us from a maturity standpoint haven't necessarily reached there. But I do know in the security space that there's a lot of advantages that could be taken from like doing machine learning or trying to do uh, predictive analysis or just be able to prevent certain things happening in your system or be able to figure out like a rate of change, which you could probably use a lot of regular statistics for a lot of these right. things. But um, I still feel like the industry is getting a feel. I think there are some vendors who are leading the space and probably are in position to take it over. Uh, I'm interested to see, I think uh, Victor Ops got acquired by Splunk, I think. Yep. Uh, and then Victor Ops was working, I think they have like an AI tool or something. It's, um, it's recommended responders. So there's two things. There's recommended responders based mm -hmm. on previous incidents they've responded to and then similar incidents, which is a machine learning problem. And that's where I think right now is a lot more practical application today that I think a lot of people across the organization could adopt. Um, and that's yeah. what I typically, that's the area where um, the incident management and being able to know like what incidents are similar without me having to develop a system to go do that, I think is a big win for AI ops today. So. And I think you said the keyword, which is practicality. Yeah. Um, like AI ops sounds cool. Westworld is one of my favorite shows. So yeah. I like AI stuff, but like, tell me what the, what, what it's doing. Tell me the yeah. practical implications of it. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. And I'm sorry, like I'll say this, maybe, I don't know if we want to have this in the talk, but like in the machine learning space is interesting because um, a lot of people from the background come from academic background. And I think it's a different conversation when you bring, you know, these really oh, nice formulas and you try to explain it to a business and get people to be able to trust it. Um, there's some organizations oh, that are a lot more mature than others, but I think that's, that's a little bit of it too, um, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that the top-down perspective, there is this kind of like fairy dust that the industry is throwing at people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there's there are practicalities to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's part of it. All right, the next one is, um, oh shoot, I was gonna say no ops, but I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna do that to you. Oh, infrastructure with code. 
So like infrastructure as code means to me is very interesting because you know something about hate for this, but Chef probably did, or probably Puppet probably deemed that term very early on. I think Puppet was probably the actual right. first release open source uh, or just even configuration management tool provided to the general community. But what I think uh, infrastructure as code means to me is really just finding your desired state for your infrastructure. So anytime you want to make a change, you know that the change that you're going to make is going to give you that desired state. I see, right. Yeah. And then I think like uh, thinking about your development work process is very important too. So as we think about infrastructure as code, you know, we're probably not clicking in the UI anymore. Um, when I've seen presentations given and they talk about people who log on to AWS and go into the console and modify instances there, it's an empty pattern because you can't really reproduce that. Um, so being thinking about your development practices and what way are you going to make uh, your changes to development? Right. And then documenting changes is another important factor that I think has to go along infrastructure as code. Um, I think a lot of teams did CAD reviews and document designs, uh, but now those things need to stay up to date a lot more frequently because now we're making a lot more changes to code. Our development frequencies and our development deploy processes are a lot more robust, a lot more frequent. Um, and then automation in the code review process is something that we didn't think about before in terms of infrastructure as code because we weren't coding and I mean, you could have someone directly review what you're doing in the console by sitting there or maybe doing some like pair console editing, um, but it's not the same. And I think infrastructure as code has kind of forced people in the infrastructure world to think about, you know, those processes as well. Yeah, I think you're actually right. So avoiding the snowflake, having consistency, like the desired state, like you yeah. said, are huge. My, my question becomes then who, who is responsible for making sure that the desired state is always up to date? <laughs> it's hard, and you have to you have to choose. Like, I don't. I, GitOps is like a funny thing, and there's yeah, I mean, another there's one. ways that like, I yeah, use that like one. you know, and a lot of people here, you know, if we ask everyone around, does your infrastructure, you know, directly correlate to what you have in your repository? Um, I think people get a little nervous, um, and this is where. You know, I think is the final step into this is the observability part is like we need to start thinking about observability and infrastructure as code, uh, which one of my good friends, Rosemary, has been talking about at HashiCorp. But, uh, you know, setting SLOs and setting objectives for your configuration, like how long should it take this configuration to run? Um, how right. do we do resource management for it? You know, how do other users know that when they make a change, when they, can they expect this change to be applied? Um, and, you know, knowing that like when configuration is above your SLO, how will it actually impact the user experiences? And being able to look at infrastructure code from that standpoint, I think is, you know, super critical, um, super yeah. important. I think that's, you know, that's the next evolution of where we're headed today. Yeah, and that's what I'm yeah. Cool. So let's, um, you're gonna teach me something. We're gonna look at a project you've been working on, right? Kinda, I wanted to talk about something I actually like. I've been using Docker for a really long time and I always like love just saying about Docker and where the state of Docker is and even just creative ways that people will think about Docker. Um, and that just like Docker itself, but even just the container image world. And so in Docker, they rewrote the daemon a few years ago um, and started like the movie project and they wrote a new daemon called Container D, which when it first came out like as a runtime and a lot of people were saying like, oh, I would use this runtime versus another one. but a container D is very accessible to like import other runtimes that you want to use. 
So, um, so here today, I want to just talk about getting started with Teeny Tiny RPC. So you're very familiar with G. It's called Teeny Tiny RPC. Yeah. So it stands for Teeny Tiny RPC. And there's a really big project that I'm sure people have heard of called GRPC, um, which right. it started off as Google as their internal RPC framework and has been heavily open source. And I absolutely love GRPC. I'm a GRPC fanatic. Um, but GRPC actually comes with a lot of overhead for good reasons, for security and for a lot of retry mechanisms and a lot of other things that just need to happen in the microservice world to make it uh, fault tolerant. But what if you just had a service that you trusted the security, like maybe you didn't need TLS or maybe you didn't need all these other features that just come on top of GRPC. And I think that's what the ContainerD uh, team was facing. Like if you look at the actual commit or the merge of when ContainerD decided to use teeny tiny RPC over GRPC was due to memory issues. Um, so there's actually some performance tests that have been done on teeny tiny RPC over gRPC um, to show you like the differences in the latency. Maybe I can like show that Got it. on that. But in a regular flow, I'll take the regular just Google example of getting started with gRPC is you typically create your proto file. Your proto file is a service definition. So if you say like, hey, I want to create this, you know, microservice, and we're just going to create a hello world microservice. And this hello world microservice. Um, we have this service here, and I'm going to write this in Go, so I just create like a little Go package. But we have this RPC hello world, which takes in a hello request, and it returns a hello response. Um, and then this hello message structure uh, just takes in a message, so the user will pass in a message, and then they'll get a response from the server. Um, and this is the same way you would do this in gRPC. The way you would invoke teeny tiny RPC if you want to do this in a low latency environment, Maybe we had some internal authentication being done and we just didn't need the overall uh, uh, overhead is that we'll use the teeny tiny RPC, the teeny tiny RPC plugin that comes in with just, you know, how you normally generate protobuf here. So what I'm doing is generate a protobuf off of a relative path um, to this directory where I keep my protobuf files and using the teeny tiny RPC uh, plugin here. And then so we're going to run this. And what this does, it does automatic uh, code generation for you. So we'll go here and we'll see, I have this new directory here with this uh, protobuf right. gen. And then we have this, uh, so now we have this package hello and it tells you do not edit because this is basically like your uh, contract for your service that has the client and server code already, you know, kind of boilerplate out for you. So this is the hello request. Um, and the things that you need to implement. So I have two other folders here with the server and a client. So we have this server here. And then um, once you kind of download the teeny tiny RPC library, the same way you create like any HTTP uh, server or any gRPC server, we're going to create this teeny tiny RPC server. Um, we're going to like open up a new connection and then we're going to like register that new hello service where we pass in you know, the, how we define the implementation of our hello service. And here for the hello service is very simple. We have this simple, you know, hello world function um, that takes in that request that has that message in here that we like, um, takes in this request. If there's no input given, maybe just throw an error back. And then we would just return, hi, how are you here? Um, and then the client is very simple. You go and you kind of take that generated code. It looks almost the same. You register this new client with a new teeny tiny RPC connection here. Um, and then we're going to send a request to the server that say hello server. And then our server should just say um, receive request 
uh, from the server. So yeah, this is just a little kind of game style with teeny tiny RPC. A lot of people don't talk about it. You can find it. Yeah. Just under containing container D, uh, teeny tiny RPC. Um, no streaming is available right now as a price because this is not necessarily. I wouldn't necessarily say this is totally a production ready. I mean, it is kind Got of being used in production Kubernetes uh, when you think about it. Um, but mostly, but, is it like dev test scenarios? Yeah, it's generally dev test scenarios. I mean, the interesting thing is like we look at. I don't know if I have that link anymore. Google actually publishes a load test for like container D. Um, so like every time you know Google, whoever works on Kubernetes and they deploy through their build process, teeny tiny RPC is theoretically in some integration testing lifecycle where it's being load tested and tested and you know shipped to you in your in, in Kubernetes. Um, so you can take the risk of running teeny tiny RPC in production, but I'm not going to necessarily say like you know run it. <laughs> you should do um, it. Yeah, do you think but, it's going to replace GRCP? No, I don't think so RPC? because it's it's mainly it's just mainly meant for low. Uh, memory uh, overhead environments yeah. where you don't want to deal with a lot of uh, stuff that is in gRPC. So it made sense yep. for, you know, something like maybe container-container communication because you already right. have, you know, a container living on a host that you probably are fine with. It allows you to have that protobuf definition and you can spit that out to be gRPC or teeny tiny RPC instead of just doing regular RPC calls. Because, I mean, theoretically, we could just do regular RPC calls. Right. Or just regular HTTP calls between two but what, yeah. what you just said is critical because it could help with disparity across environments. Like oh, that is my biggest issue as an SRE is the fact that, like, our variable names aren't the same down these distributed, trace, like, down these distributed systems. So when I try to trace a transaction, you know, right. vendor ID could be SKU ID in this other system. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, if you don't know about Proto, fall in love with Proto just like I did, because you can just give someone this contract and say, you know, generate client and server side code. And I definitely want to preference this who you don't know gRPC is that you just doesn't have to just spit out Go. You can spit out um, Python, you can spit out Ruby or whatever you want. Right. Um, and be able to write your client and server side code there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that is probably the actual nice part of this yeah those the um, prototypes and the yeah the basically yeah. the definition is yeah is key and it's portable it's so portable cool. yeah yeah great well thank you that that's that's fantastic um so to wrap it up uh, how would people because you you obviously did the observe talk um yeah. you probably i'm assuming you're probably going to do even some more talks and okay, yeah. and um you know you've you've got a ton of experience how would people find you to learn from you I think um, Ali.xyz on the About Me page, I do have a place where you can schedule one-on-one with me. And email is fine or Twitter. Um, love to chat. I love, you know, gRPC. I love containers. And observability are the three things that I'm awfully willing in. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining me for the second virtual episode. Thanks for teaching me how to code something. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we get to chat again soon. Yeah. Cool.